Today I'm joined by Dan, who is the founder of MetaMask, which is a popular browser plugin with over a million users. Um, Dan, I kind of want to jump right in and talk about the future of the economy because um, your MetaMask is a, is a browser plugin for Ethereum and um, you're kind of in the financial space. So can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So since your listeners may not be like crypto savvy pros, um, you know, the, the browser as it exists today and the internet today doesn't have payments built in. There is no like economic center to the internet. Instead, what you've got, you've got, you know, your traditional banks, and then you usually got your credit card, and now increasingly you've got like Apple Pay and Samsung Pay, like gradually integrating into the browser. But what there isn't is like a universal kind of portable notion of paying things. And so what we did with MetaMask is we took a a cryptocurrency, Ethereum, um, and Ethereum's more uh, versatile than you know Bitcoin before it had this one innovation where instead of just being a single currency. It's actually this platform where you can write uh, smart contracts. And I don't know how much we want to get into that, but they're basically these publicly verifiable programs and they can be new currencies themselves. And so basically what we've done is we've added to the browser we've, with a browser extension, the ability to not just um, spend currency, uh, create new currencies, create new kinds of economic agreements, uh, uh, contracts, uh, constructions, opening up this whole like kind of creative space where people can start playing with, in my opinion, playing with economics, playing with uh, value itself uh, in a way that the web didn't really have before. Before. Okay, so yeah. what? Sorry to interrupt, yeah, yeah. but what? How does this differ from like PayPal? Because when I interact with PayPal, it feels like it's happening through the browser. Yeah. So what distinguishes PayPal running before MetaMask came along? When did? When was MetaMask founded? Oh my. Uh, I think it was 2015. Okay. <laughs> so we're going like on to three years now. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, so how, could you explain that a little or is that getting too technical? No, 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 that's totally fine. Like, so like PayPal, you are spending normal money and it's going through this company. So you deposit some money in them and then vendors who want to accept PayPal, they say they put a little PayPal button and it links to their PayPal account. And so when you pay somebody on PayPal, it's really PayPal saying, oh, you, you know, $10 from you, uh, managing $10 the ledger, basically. They're managing the whole ledger okay, and all of okay. that. Um, so the first thing that like a cryptocurrency does is first of all, you've cut PayPal out. So now instead there's kind of this validator pool and it does still have a transaction fee, but it's like uh, competitive. So anyone can run a validator. Um, so in a way you've, you've disintermediated rather than just PayPal, you now have this like open market of validation. So it's a little bit closer to a direct uh, exchange. And then when you add smart contracts on top of that, uh, now we, we open it up. It's not just a payment. It could be um, a vote in our public organization to spend funds in a certain way. It could mm -hmm. be an agreement to a subscription. Um, it could be um, it could be creating a new currency. Um, okay. Yeah, so it's, it's a much more open-ended platform. So it's sort of embedding the ability to manage a ledger into the browser itself. Um, yeah, not necessarily manage the whole ledger because no individual participant right. manages the whole thing. And that's kind of the power of blockchains is that like we've got the whole world is mm -hmm. collectively managing one ledger. So a single participant has so much power over it. And that power is actually usually the native cryptocurrency. So okay. if we're on uh, Bitcoin, then that is one Bitcoin and all transaction fees are paid in that. And on Ethereum, uh, it's an Ether. And it just, okay. just means that all transaction fees are first paid in that. And then 
on top of that, we can now build other constructs. So I can now open a store and I can accept whatever currency I want that, it, that exists on the blockchain. Okay, so now kind of gearing back to, uh, back away from the tangent I got you on, um, future of, of finance, where were you going with that? Ah, yeah, yeah, okay, <laughs> so uh, kind of a leading conversation because I think that, um, uh, I think that you, you know, like I, I have like a realm of ideas about this. I, I mean, the fun thing about blockchain, the reason I came to it is that it is a space where we can innovate in general and we can test these theories. So um, I'm a fan of all sorts of theories, first of all. Like, like <laughs> I, I don't mean to be overly like, um, but what I, what I do like is I like finding the constructs that are like bulletproof mm -hmm. and like are really secure and stable um, and kind of trying to build out from that. Sure. So the, the economics I'm interested in, I'm interested in making something first that is like practical and adoptable. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, <laughs> people who are looking at MetaMask today, they're like, you're three years in, you're a browser extension doesn't have like mainstream traction and that's okay we I, I our, our game plan is not executed yet um we, we're still building it out there really is a lot of stuff that has to fall into place but it has to be uh, easily adoptable um and it has to be um has to be kind of incrementally extended trust um and uh yeah and there, there's a few things uh to it so i i don't want to dive straight into uh i think what yeah. Should I just dive into like uh, my thoughts on social collateral or whatever? Yeah, or? yeah. I do. I do want to hear about that because right. all I've heard is that you have thoughts about a currency, yeah, backed by social collateral. But I don't know what that means. I'm not even sure what social collateral means yeah. in this context. So I, I'm very curious. It's, uh, you know, like the more I've learned about it, the more I like don't think it's a novel concept at all. I think it's actually just learning to apply a common pattern into a lot of spaces and uh, recognizing and appreciating. It's like the heart of many kinds of effective social scalability. And um, so the, the basic, the most basic version is just um, you make the observation that when you trust somebody, you might give them a power. Uh, like free or you might just trust them with something and and this is like the foundation of like human trust so if we're trying to build uh, a large society or a new organization or whatever the thing that it all hinges on is like who gets power like who who gets a key to the door who gets to come in yeah. in the morning um, and then it extends to financial things who gets a paycheck on a regular basis um, who gets the company car uh, who gets access to the server right and and uh, actually in computation this, this stuff has all got like a very formalized model it's called, it's actually two different ones. There's the object capabilities model and then there's the actor model. They basically describe the exact same things. It's like, we are actors in a system mm -hmm. and we can share capabilities with each other. And when I share a capability with you, like I give you the key to my car, you have autonomy over that uh, power. Like I, it's not me just like telling my car, like you're allowed. Mm -hmm. Instead, you have the ability to share it with somebody else and they could share it with someone else. So there's actually this, um, it's, uh, the key to a car is a very powerful thing because it's actually a transitive trust thing. Like mm -hmm. when I give you the key, I'm not just trusting you to take the car out. I'm trusting you to do whatever's needed with the car. Like you could take it to the shop. You could give it to somebody else on short notice if needed mm -hmm. uh, and things like that. Um, where this starts to play into economics is that once you have established uh, networks of trust, so like um, in, in normal life, this happens all the time. We do it on small bases. We, we do it with a key. We do it with... Uh, you know, just, just very common things, knowledge even. But um, when you take it onto the blockchain, we start being able to automate degrees of it that are um, unprecedented. So for example, you can authorize people um, to, to spend any of your resources. Like any, any resource that's on the blockchain 
can be automatically extended to someone. So I could say, um, you have permission to withdraw um, $1,000 from me if you ever need it. And as long as like, we have like, a social understanding of like, the terms of that, mm -hmm. I, can, I can put that on the table. And that's something you can't do today. Um, you can't do that with the modern banking system. Well, you can, you can add people to an account, but you have to like, go in, you have to sit down, you have to have a meeting, mm -hmm. you, all, mm -hmm. you all have to sign papers and stuff. And it's not uh, very transitive. So I can grant you that permission. You can't grant that permission to someone else. Okay. Um, Are you talking about just like fungible, liquid, cash kind of goods, finances? Or are you talking about kind of a future of, I don't want to say barter, but like physical goods? Yeah, I, I am leaning <laughs> towards the camp of this applies to all things. Okay. <laughs> um, and, and like uh, some people, like a lot of Bitcoin like adherents, they would say uh, the whole point of a currency is that we have a single unit to measure things in. Um, and, and that's fine. You can have a single unit to measure things in. But ultimately at the edges, uh, all of our needs and all of our uh, uh, abilities are uh, more specific than that. So a, a perfectly efficient economy mm -hmm. would basically account for those things and then implement efficient matchmaking between those. Okay, I see. That's interesting. So the idea is like cash is a middleman of sorts in the mm -hmm. first place. And so if that's an inefficiency we can eliminate, you think that the current, that finances or, or value stores would be better off for it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that like, like cash is great and finds, especially when you're dealing with like throngs of people you don't trust. Like, like the cash as the U.S. government issues it, they're like, mm -hmm. okay, we're going to print it on this side. Uh, give it to like our uh, military contractors, uh, and then we're gonna uh, collect taxes on the other side. And this creates an economy that fills the need of those military contractors. Um, but additionally, what what we could say, um, if we were a more needs-based economy, mm -hmm. maybe they maybe instead of saying, okay, we're just gonna print bucks and give it to them, maybe they could say, well, here's the things we actually need. Um, you know, you could you could go on the blockchain tomorrow and you could say, here's a list of my needs. Like I need a roof over my head, I need mm -hmm. like three square meals, and, and here's what qualifies as a, as a square meal to me, you know, and, uh, and you know, some water and, and you know, enough space to have, uh, you know, my community and love in it. Um, and if, if you listed those out, I mean, imagine how that might change a Kickstarter. Um, a Kickstarter, you might not just collect dollars. Like, if you were saying, oh, I also need a plastic injection mold at some point, <laughs> somebody who has a plastic injection mold could f help fund and they'd like get a perk at the rate that that's available at the yeah. market rate, but they could provide something they have. They may not have cash on hand. They may have a capability, but not have um, uh, capital. And, yeah. and so kind of what I'm trying to address um, with when I think about like future economics, mm -hmm. I'm thinking about solving the problem that people have, we, we, we have the power, all value comes from people, um, mm -hmm. but what we don't necessarily have is liquidity in the form of like, uh, issued currency from from a government or from like right. a popular blockchain or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. So I'm curious how how that would work with a government um, because they're going to need a way of, of taxing still. And even if they were needs based, I mean, what does what does that look like? They might say, oh, we need machine guns or tanks or something, and we need roadways. But there's only those are, it seems like the government's needs are going to be very niche to the actual population. So how does value get transferred from an every person like myself up to a government? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that this works in parallel to the current governance system. I don't think this is like solving big problems that major governments have today necessarily. Although, I, I don't know, I, I actually haven't thought uh, too deep about that. But we maybe, maybe we should explore that. Like, because today, mm -hmm. printing money and then taxing people and using that money to militarily dominate, uh, that's been like kind of effective. Maybe we're finally seeing that it's not like actually <laughs> long-term sustainable. Um, that actually... Um I was listening to a book, it's called, it was called Debt, the first... 5,000 years? Yes, yeah. okay, have you read this book? Yeah. Okay, so I thought it was yeah, David absolutely... David Graeber's great. <laughs> I thought it was absolutely fascinating. Um, for, for those watching or listening, the author talks about how there's sort of, the barter system is a myth, that barter of like, I'm gonna trade you shoes for potatoes didn't mm. really, happen and instead um, money wasn't wasn't really used to alleviate these barter issues of like three-way trades of goods but instead was issued by um, governments that needed to make sure they maintain their power so the idea was the government said I'm gonna give these things called dollars cash called cash to our military and I'm going to require my citizens to pay taxes with this cash. That way I ensure that my military at any time can get food and shelter that they need and that way they're mobile, they're fast, they're strong, we can defeat enemies, we can keep home safe, we can expand. And so the idea was, yeah, cash actually is, is a tactic for the government to make sure that their army is taken care of. Um, and so that, that's kind of what was running through my mind. Yeah, talking I, was about practically, these goods. I was practically quoting it. Yeah, you, you, <laughs> like, were, you like, were very, yeah, very yeah. much talking about that, which, which I'm yeah. sure is why that came up in my mind. Yeah. But that's sort of where I'm coming from and wondering, like, my goodness, how are they might they might be able to say these are my military's needs um, or these are even just our needs as like in municipalities, like we need we need roads. But it seems like that's going to be a challenge and a government is not naturally going to give in and be like oh well this is a better this is a better system and people are going to just transmit goods to one another that they need oh yeah yeah so i do not think of this as something where uh, <laughs> like you said not you, to replace cash yeah altogether. i don't well i don't think of it as a way of uh negotiating with governments i i totally think of this as a way of like one of the other criteria I have for like a future economics is it needs to be able to, so it has to be easily adoptable. Mm -hmm. And it also has to like be able to gradually displace until it maybe contests existing power structures. Mm. Um, so, so for me, it's not so interesting to be like, oh, well, what if the government represented their needs as tanks instead of <laughs> dollars? Because well, they're still making tanks. What I'm interested in is people who don't have access to capital right now, mm. who maybe aren't making tanks, who aren't part of that loop of the, the military economy as much and, and letting them wean off of it. So right now, as long as you only transact in dollars, mm -hmm. then you are definitely part of that. Like I think of it as an electric potential, right? Like they're printing it on this side, they're taxing it on this side. So if you're not part of that loop, mm -hmm. like you, you have to be in that loop at least um, your tax percent, right? So that's how much of your money you have to like yeah. acquire from that loop. Um, so what I'm interested in is first, how much of every person's economics can be weaned out of that loop. How much can we create like local or peer-to-peer -peer economies where um, you're, the, the, more, the, the less of your day-to-day -day transacting is mm -hmm. participating in that uh, mm -hmm. effective war machine, yeah. um, the more you are um, 
Well, there's, there's a variety of benefits. Like, first of all, I think that you have the potential of effectively creating capital because um, one, of the, one of the basic things that um, you get to do on a blockchain is you can make new monies. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, monies are basically promises, right? So originally the Fed was, was all gold and silver and now it's just kind of general tax mm -hmm. redemption promise. Um, but if individuals print money representing their promises, the things they can do, they're willing to do, um, you, you've now created the potential for collaboration that is peripheral and completely uh, yeah, supplementary to any other economies that exist. So, so maybe I say, oh, well, I can, uh, I can definitely mow a lawn, right? And I'm, I'm willing to print you know, full-time years of lawn mowing credits right now because I just need to get by. You know, yeah. I could have an open sale and it's, it's possible that if I sell, you know, my, my tax rate worth of those in dollars, then I'll be able to cover my uh, money while also accepting uh, potentially currencies just representing my basic needs. I, I like where that's going in, in theory, but mm -hmm. I still want to push back in practice mm -hmm. because anytime a store of value trades hands, the government wants to get their hands on it. Yeah. And you can't... If if you're um, if you're giving out even even like gifts of high value yeah. are taxable, um, commodities are taxable even though they're not fiat. Um, and I was actually talking to the founder and CEO of Era about this idea of okay a decentralized kind of marketplace of goods where we're talking about communities coming together and saying. Um, I need a ride to the airport. Can somebody give me a ride to the airport? And sort of this this uh, system of, of sharing of goods and services. And because it's never cashed out into fiat currency, in theory, it's not really taxable. It's not really income. But the government still has major problems with these systems, and they take them down. I don't have examples of this, but it has happened historically. Yeah. Um, and so I'm just not sure that this kind of a thing is going to come alongside fiat and that it'll play nicely with the government as soon as you start. I guess sort of the controversial place I'm going with this is, is it possible that the government does rely upon people who aren't necessarily in that loop of wealth that you're talking about? So we're talking about people who are, you know, at poverty line or close to poverty line, certainly in like lower classes who might not have liquid currencies, but do have needs. Does the government actually rely on those people to maintain its, its power and enough cash flow? Like maybe the government actually does need lower classes paying something to them in the form of the goods that they transact still. Um, yeah, those are, those are good points. I mean, that's a, it's completely, it's like an inevitable concern basically. So if these, uh, become more and more popular, um, I think the, the short term answer and that the gentle thing is to say, well, yeah, you just, uh, you tax them and they're, they're still taxable. And, uh, yeah, like you, you have to, like they're basically, if the tax laws can't or don't know how to tax them, they just need to evolve quickly and, um, I know it's putting a lot of stress uh, on uh, people who were early to adopt cryptocurrency because oh, yeah, there's absolutely. a lot of undefined space. Um, yeah. So if you want to play nice with the government, um, yeah, you, you end up uh, bending over backwards, doing a lot of their work for them um, to try to just be as honest as you can. Um, and, and I don't think that there's anything about uh, alternative or uh, supplementary currencies that um, 
or mutual mutual credit. No, mutual credit refers to the two. I think supplementary currency means it's supplementary to a centrally issued government currency. Okay. Um, so I don't think there's anything about a supplementary currency that precludes taxation or like legal participation. And yes, if they continue like accepting sales tax at ten percent, well, I may sell my uh, my burrito coins. I, I like burrito coins. Like I mostly I'm in this for burritos. Um, <laughs> But if I sell my burrito coins, when you redeem them, like I would owe 10% of that to the government. And presumably I would need to have a secondary market where I'm accepting them for dollars so that uh, I can pay that, you know, they, they may not even care uh, exactly how I get the dollar. Yeah, so there's definitely big open questions about how the taxation would be implemented, especially okay. when like, if my local promises are not uh, fungible on a larger market, like, what if I, you know, I'm just like, I'll pick up around the house. Like, you know, like if you imagine the most micro currency, like the smallest agreements you make with someone, they're, they're uh, effectively untaxed, right? Does putting them okay. on a ledger suddenly make them more taxable? Uh, that would be like a scary uh, dystopian version of it because it's like <laughs> when I open the door for you, like does, yeah. do I have to like now open a tenth of a door for the government or something? Like, you know, like if we accounted for everything, all the kindnesses that we ever exchanged for each other, uh, it would be like monumental. So I think there's an increasing gray area that even the most legal interpretation of alternative currencies would have to confront eventually. Okay. Um, but then there's the harder answer um, where it's like uh, also the cryptography and the technology is simply enabling increasingly private agreements. And mm. so so for people who don't want to play nice in there, there, there is like a growing number of options for them. And there's not really... Um, there's not an easy answer to that. There's like uh, auditing and stuff, but like, you know, the IRS is like getting its uh, budget completely drained year after year. Uh, it's so, so that becomes like increasingly difficult and hard. So, so those are kind of like the two ways, like either it iterates really fast and people become very honest or, um, or there's going to be some parallel economies that uh, effectively live outside of the space of normal taxation. Um, the truth probably lies somewhere in between. There's probably going to be people that participate in both of those. Mm -hmm. um, and I think they're both basically inevitable because you're always going to have people who want to cover their ass in case the government comes at them. Mm -hmm. And then you're always going to have some kind of daring uh, shadow uh, economies <laughs> that, or, or just people that don't think it's such a big deal um, that want to just experiment with how they coordinate together. Yeah. So it, could you explain to me again how this social collateral might operate yeah because when i think about something like opening a door um and i and i know you're talking about right, right. like i'm like, I'm like goods, yeah, yeah i'm but, going out of certain there for sure but um so how is it a tit for tat kind of social collateral no. idea or is it just altruistic so so the initial infrastructure has to be built on altruism which is the crazy I'll, I'll try to step you through the logic that originally got me to it. Um, I since discovered all these other people had like written about it and whatever. But like I was like, how do you just make like a stable organization? Like let's say we just want to make a club and we want to expand membership safely. Okay, so like we've got we've got a pool of funds. You know, we manage it. We've got like a thousand bucks a year. It's just like we throw a party every year or something, and we want to scale the organization. We want to throw a bigger party, and it's just going to take more action, more initiative, more people, basically. So, so how do we invite somebody in in such a way that they're accountable for what they do um, and in such a way that like, uh, right, and so, so I, originally I was, I was thinking a lot about democracy, I was thinking about voting schemes, I was like, okay, so if we invite them in, do they get voting shares? Well, they have to get some voting shares. Do they just get proposal shares? <laughs> um, I mean, because if we, 
if I let you just invite anybody in and they get a voting share when they come in, then you could just keep inviting people, multiplying your votes. These could all be uh, sock puppets, right? They could be your friends or they could be accounts that you just made up because remember, we're on the internet here too. Um, so, so how do I make sure that, that no individual has power to basically extend more of the shared trust than they themselves are granted with? Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I basically like, I kept on like having like inklings, like, like I think there's like a basic solution or something. And then like uh, about a year ago, like I, I was like, oh, oh, it's, it's like really simple. It is, it's built out of sharing the permission to spend things. And, and it's weird, it breaks down mm-hmm. a lot of kinds of uh, organizations. So if, we, if, we've got, if we throw a party every year and we've got a thousand dollar budget, what, what extending permission to manage that budget looks like, it looks like one of us, um, potentially just like sharing, uh, like let's say we both have full autonomy, we share this 100%, mm-hmm. completely trust each other. Um, uh, I, I could bring in a third person and I could be like, look, uh, they're, they're bringing the snacks. Like I trust them 100% with 50 bucks worth of snacks. They now have access to $50 worth of our $1,000 budget. Mm-hmm. And there is nothing that they can do that will, like as long as my relationship with them is worth more than $50, like, so this is my friend, like, like we, we hang out every once in a while. Like, I don't think he would burn me over $50. Like, as long as that holds true, then there's, there's nothing, there's no side bribery. There's no uh, number of new accounts that can be made um, that can basically drain our pool. Um, and so the, the key here is that the, the organization scales in proportion to the trust that we have with people. And that was like one of the cool parts about it is that... Um, it's like ultimately, like, and this means like literal liquidity, liquidity is created, like liquidity being, um, maybe I'm making a new definition, an individual's uh, ability to make economic decisions, so mm. ability to spend or something. So, so we both had $1,000 of liquidity, right? This is potential. We're not spending it yet. And now somebody else just gained $50 of liquidity. As long as they're trusted to spend it well, mm-hmm. um, like they haven't depleted our uh, volition at all. We've, we've actually just expanded total liquidity. Um, so now if this, this could be, the thing is used wrong, this, this can also be the fabric of like pyramid schemes and stuff, because mm-hmm. what you can do is you can be like, well, there's a deal. You, you, if you pay to join, say, then I'll occasionally extend some to you, right? And you can make these weird reciprocal deals that, that are not uh, substantial. And people have to recognize that like, if you're paying for a friendship or something that's like not yeah. sincere. Um, so. So how do people enter into this type of a system? Because you're not, when you add somebody to your $1,000 budget account, you're not adding to the value in the system at that point. Um, well, you, how, how is value yeah. added? Yeah, so, so I think the value is, is minted when people issue promises. So, so that can be, what's great is there's this bootstrap ability of this where we're on a blockchain. Let's assume we're on a blockchain. So there is already money in the system. So, so we can just have accounts. So we start with that money and then we are now creating additional, um, we're creating additional uh, paths for that money. That's fine. Money is added to, or value is like potentially added to the system when people create new currencies. So when you, you know, if you wanted to open a, a new store or something, you're like, okay, we're going to, I'm going to open this market. Um, and I need some I need some money to start it. So basically like tokenizing the ownership. So you sell shares in it. You could say I'm going to sell 10% ownership or something. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, you may be getting into securities if you are promising payouts in the future, but what a lot of um 
companies in the crypto space have been doing, they've been uh, basically betting that it's not going to be a security if you're instead of promising future payouts based on shares, you're just promising the share is like redeemable for something, a utility token. Hmm. So if I if I open a uh, a coffee shop and the tokens are worth cups of coffee, right? That's probably not a security because they're they're like they have a fixed right. value. Right. I might sell them at a discount up front because that fixed value is adjusted for the likelihood that I am successful in opening a coffee shop. Mm -hmm. So. Um, so that's where you get your discount. So your your expected revenue, it's not expected on like residual payouts where you've got a fixed ownership of a company forever, mm -hmm. which is insane and exploitive. And and I, I think the kind of like parasitic relationship that modern finance has with new ventures. Instead, um, you sell to whoever you want to, maybe friends and family first, you give them whatever discount you want. Mm -hmm. And they simply, uh, their their profitability is simply the discount you gave them for taking the risk on you. Okay. And what happens, is, is value taken out of the system when a person fails to deliver on a promise? Um, yeah, yeah. When you, yeah, it's, it's like a, a currency failing or collapsing. So, okay. so the entire thing, um, and, and money's always been like this, money is like, you know, like money is sometimes just thought of as debt, right? It's like, this is, it's always a, uh, it's a promise, it's someone else's promise, right? It's the, <laughs> it's, like it's the, the it's the government's promise to, uh, to serve you or something. Yeah, yeah, or it's the promise to pay the central bank back or whatever, right? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, when when one of these promises is not filled, like in Venezuela, they just keep printing money and they're like diminishing their promise. They're basically not, they're not serving on their word and so that currency tanks. And so this scheme does rely on individuals taking on the same responsibility of central banks, which like, you might be like, oh, I, I'm not sophisticated enough to <laughs> run a central bank. You're like, actually, it just means keep your fucking word. <laughs> like, that's all. That's what running a central bank is. Um, it's it's make, making promises and holding up on them. What, what about on a micro level? Yeah. I would hope that the person who's failing to keep their promise is, well, I think I would hope that the person who's failing to keep their promise would be more negatively impacted than the system broadly, not just distributed. Yeah, equally. you would hope that, but um, if you if you buy in on somebody's um, untrustworthy promise, then mm -hmm. yeah, you're you're liable for that. That's that's just like that's it's not even a property of the system I'm proposing. Like like if if I it, whenever somebody tricks somebody else, the person gets tricked. That's that's what happens. And this is just what's nice about this is this is merely a system that like reflects those realities. So you're in the example of a, a person opening up a coffee shop that you'd mentioned, and you know they're they're taking like maybe an espresso machine from somebody who has one, and that's a sort of um, investment in the business mm -hmm. that could be turned around back to them. Um, are you suggesting it operates kind of like uh, venture capital with startups today, where if you invest in um, a startup and the CEO just like takes off with the money and doesn't actually start their business, obviously the, the, the venture capitalist has lost their investment and that stinks, but um, part of the negative social trust aspect with the CEO in this example is they're just not going to be able to get venture capital again. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so the venture capital is clearly a really tough game because what you're doing is you're meeting a stranger and yeah. you're deciding how credible they are. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite things about this scheme is that um, you can use it to basically graph trust relationships um, at, at all scales. So, so it works really great at the micro scale. Um, like if you mapped a family's trust 
you'd have this incredibly dense trust network and it adds like very high uh, economic uh, velocity or whatever. Mm. But when you look at, if you use the same graphing technique to look at a VC, you know, they're gonna try yeah. every single method that they can. So if they have a mutual friend and that will vouch for them, like that is a form of social collateral because they are putting their word on the line. Mm. Like, so if, yeah. so if you're applying at my VC firm and, and uh, you know, Mark's our mutual friend and he's like totally credible, if I take, if I take his word and then you bail on me, like it's gonna damage our relationship. Yeah, the collateral sure. is that. So, so the the way that these uh, systems like give full guarantee is only when your like chains of trust to people, um, mm -hmm. uh, the value that's being uh, that's being uh, used. Wait, you're you're collateralizing your relationship. Your relationship needs to be worth more than uh, what you're transmitting otherwise. Right. Um, anything other than that is dangerous gambling, and that's kind of what VCs are doing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's fine. Like, there's place for that. People can do whatever they want with their uh, abilities and resources, right? Like, mm -hmm. if you're really good at sizing people up, looking them in the eye, figuring out if they're credible, that is super valuable because what we need in, in I think, society is basically um, the, the ability to form trusting bond relationships, the ability to to create promises and get all the things done that we need to get done. Because mm -hmm. ultimately we have massive challenges like as a species, like for me, this always like kind of comes back to like climate change where it's like, why can't we coordinate around this? And it's like, uh, everybody's like playing chicken, waiting for somebody else to budge on it. Yeah. And nobody trusts uh, everyone else comments. to do their part. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, yeah. Like it, it can be, it can be hard to see like the path from, from here to there. But um, like what this ultimately is about is how do we build these bonds between each other where we're willing to um, make promises and hold them? Mm -hmm. um, and that's that's like the that's the groundwork that that I think is greatly facilitated by blockchains. Basically. Okay. So the difference that would set sort of like China's social credit system apart from this type of a system yeah. is really just the decentralization component, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, they are, I, each person gets to decide how they trust everyone else however they want. Mm -hmm. And that includes the Chinese government. Right. They can choose whatever algorithm they want to evaluate everybody. Oh, I'm sorry, I touched the mic. They can, <laughs> okay. I'll say it again. They can choose whatever <laughs> algorithm they want for, for evaluating people's credibility. And, and the tyranny in that situation is not so much the fact that they're going to evaluate credibility, it's the fact that they're going to use it to decide how they treat you. That's the tyranny. Yeah. Um, like, so... You know, they're, they're in a tough situation because they don't really know you, but so they're going to use every signal they can. It's similar to the VC game. Right. It's like, how do you trust a stranger? They're going to just massively aggregate all data, and mm -hmm. then they're going to give you a score. And that is, that's frightening, and it's tyrannical, and scary, mm -hmm. um, because we, we know at our heart that there's like, there's like something uh, more fair and even, and we shouldn't have to censor the way we speak for it. And, uh, and, and I, I think that ultimately, building mm -hmm. social bonds, it's... Yeah, like it sounds like too simple. It's like a lot of times I feel like, like ugh, I'm I'm giving the spiel again, but it's because it's like too simple. It's like we're just keeping your promises. Yeah. Like make promises to each other, and as long as you have a, uh, as long as you are holding your promises that are of sufficient value to a community, um, then then you should be adequately supported. Mm -hmm. um, so, with the the social credit system, I think another thing that is scary about it is that there's no um, there's no like avenue for forgiveness or mercy that's built into the system. You have sort of this permanent track record. Um, what about in the system that you're suggesting? What does forgiveness or mercy look like in that system? Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's 
completely built in. <clears throat> like it's almost the default. Um, it's, there's always chains of human relationships. So in the situation where uh, uh, you're, you're opening a coffee shop mm -hmm. and, and I, I've got an espresso machine and I'm not sure if I can trust you. And then, and then Mark is like, oh yeah, no, she's not going to wreck your espresso machine. Okay. Now let's say I lend it to you and an accident happens. There's a fire and it's destroyed. I am mm -hmm. now put in a situation. I'm like, did, did, uh, did Mark betray me? Did she, did she, or was this an honest mistake? Yeah. And, and if I'm not sure, if I'm not close enough to you to evaluate, I'm going to put it on Mark. I'm going to be like, Mark, I, I'm not sure. I, I, th I feel like I'm owed an espresso machine here. And he would go to you and he'd be like, was this real? And, and um, the thing about having this, this chain, this, this graph connecting the people that established the initial trust is that there's like this um, mutual friend um, enforcement mechanism where, mm -hmm. where ultimately your friend, a friend of yours who trusted you will come to you and be like, mm -hmm. what happened? <laughs> right. And, and it's like a sincere conversation. It's not a, it's not a insurance investigator coming down and like basically trying to get a better deal out of you and trying to find an excuse to cut you out, which is like the backwards adversarial relationship that modern insurance has. Mm -hmm. Instead, you've got a friend saying, Oh, is that real? And if it was real, if it was sincere, it basically bubbles back up the graph. Mm -hmm. So he'd be like, Oh, I don't blame you. And, and so, so he might at that point say like, Hey, I believe her. Dan, if you if you need if you feel like betrayed here, I'll I'll pay you for it mm -hmm. uh, potentially, or or I'm gonna maybe like worst case scenario, yeah. I'm like I don't know if we're friends anymore. I really and he could be like, look, I'll pay you for it if you want, and, and then <laughs> basically we each get to decide how much we're willing to forgive and uh, how much mm -hmm. we're, we feel obligated to enforce. Yeah, it's I I have in conversations just been hearing over and over and over again this theme of um, relationships social connections, networks, this is the new form of value. This mm -hmm. is the new form of wealth uh, that is just coming back again and again. Yeah. And I think that the responsible thing to do in response to that is to ask who's at risk in these systems? Who stands to lose by the economy shifting from information into relationships? And um, I wonder like about a person who is socially isolated in the first place because in such a system it would naturally follow that people who are socially isolated also now are not going to have wealth or means to stores of value and is that only going to alienate certain social problems so for instance like school shooters things like this that happen often it's people who are isolated and alienated and if now we're adding on top of that an additional piece that they are less able financially speaking, or I guess financially might not even be the right word, but goods wise, values wise, is that a problem? I, I mean, that's a great question. Um, but so, so here's a cool thing about this kind of construct is that it works um, independent of how connected the graphs are. So we could have like a, a household trust network, mm -hmm. we could have a citywide one, and then there could be a totally separate one. And, and I would argue that actually what we're doing is we're representing relationships in a automated ledger. Mm -hmm. We're not actually, it's like, it's not a new cryptocurrency. It's like a, it's just a automated way of re representing our existing trust networks. Mm -hmm. Now in the example of like an isolated community or an individual, like, first of all, they're already getting by somehow, right? So, mm -hmm. so the first question is like, if they're already meeting their needs, they don't have needs from outside. And so they don't have need of these extra tr trust connections. They would continue getting by like they do already. Um, this kind of uh, system 
it only really uh, adds uh, trust potentially. Like so, so you're extending well, your on, trust. Can I yeah. Interrupt you. I'm not. I'm not sure if. I mean, people are arguably getting by today, but if somebody oh, right. doesn't have social connections right now, kind of going back to the government piece, I guess they theoretically can get a lot of needs met through the government that yeah. they might not be able to otherwise. Ooh, yeah, yeah. And if this does, I know you're saying this is, you know, I, it would be naive to think this is going to come up and just like replace the government. Oh, but, yeah, yeah. but even if it happens alongside the government, I, I, I'm not sure what happens there. And I'm not sure that I necessarily agree that if they're getting by today in this system, they would continue to get by. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and sure. And I was also like kind of, dismissing it in the context of, well, maybe this isolated community is getting by. So let's instead take the example of underrepresented communities. Okay. This is probably a way more interesting topic anyways, right? Okay. So let's look at communities that today don't have access to capital. Um, these are communities that maybe have been systematically deprived of education, mm -hmm. of normal resources, maybe access to uh, uh, other opportunities that okay. otherwise would give them the ability to start their own businesses or create their own opportunities. Mm -hmm. And yes, some of them may rely on uh, like, yeah, welfare systems, like systems that are currently provided by the state. Um, now, now, one thing is I'd point out like the state is like right now, like it's almost scarily in danger of like cutting some of those kinds of systems. So there's like a scary amount of precariousness on those mm -hmm. where, where I, I, I personally, like I, I, uh, I believe in, in welfare systems. I believe in a social safety net. I, I think that people should be extended uh, a basic opportunities. Like I, I think an economy doesn't work mm -hmm. if all the members in it don't have the access to the opportunity to, to compete, right? Okay. Like the whole theory of economics, I think, is that if there's healthy competition, then the best option will emerge. I think that right now we're kind of uh, low on the healthy competition side. Okay. Um, so... So what did we do in those situations? It, would having trust networks further deprive them? Uh, I don't think this further deprives them. I think what this does is this uh, gives communities that are otherwise disconnected from traditional finance mm -hmm. ways of kind of bandying together, um, representing the trust that they have in their own communities mm -hmm. um, to coordinate more efficiently. And so this can mean, like, let's say let's say we're in a in, in a community that just doesn't have access to. Um, Let's say we don't have time or money, right? Like we're, we're both yeah. working four jobs and we, we don't have money. And, and let's say the wel our welfare checks just got cut. Like there's somebody in power and they're making it even harder on us. And what we need is we need to get out of this poverty loop, right? We need, it's like, look, I need at least like four years to just get training for this modern economy. And then, and then I'm gonna need some capital just to like make something for the world, right? Um, I think that this is basically what the role of like education, um, you know, like today education's all uh, debt based or largely debt based, right? The student yeah. debt economy is enormous, and I, I would argue that um, a lot of this is that that it's not efficient. Um, so it, in economics terms, right, is that you've got people that um, they're they're not trusted by traditional finance today because you've got VCs and all of their signals and all the ways that they measure things. It's like ultimately based on past performance and it's based on things that are like a little bit less um, intimate to a person. Mm -hmm. And I think that the people that are most credible to evaluate someone's trustworthiness and in turn like credibility for credit, potentially for an education loan or a business startup, those are the people closest to them. Okay. And, and so, so 
there's kind of two aspects to it. One is maybe they can bandy together and you know, maybe if they all made available all the things they could do just in their spare time, at least it'd be a little more efficient for trying to create something new. But also, let's say a single member of that community shared a bond with a larger liquidity network or something. Like, let's say AVC moved to a different town or uh, was a cousin with somebody um, in a less uh, accessed area, uh, right? A, an underrepresented community. Mm -hmm. if, if a VC had a strong trust with someone, and this is, this is basically how a lot of uh, mutual credit kind of uh, lending uh, cooperatives work, is they'll, they'll establish a bank in a region and they'll just give it an amount of money. Um, there's actually a, a cool book called Social Collateral that's basically about this in, uh, I think it's in Ecuador, and they're talking about, they, they open these banks and the, the problem is, though, when you open these banks and then you, you hire these mid-level managers who are in charge of the funds, and you're like, it's the exact same situation what we were talking about earlier, like dividing the party funds. Like, how do we make sure that our bank managers are properly, uh, simultaneously, like, incentivized and liable? So it's like they want to find yeah. good opportunities and they want to enforce the success of those opportunities, and they're not just giving their friend a loan or something. And uh, I, I really think that, so, so maybe some people have the magic eye and they can just tell how trustworthy someone is, but like ultimately you, you, need, you need boots on the ground. Like the best thing you have are people who know each other, people who trust each other. And, and there's no substitute for that than uh, yeah, existing communities and then bonds between communities. And so there's like a huge significance on the, the connections that link uh, disparate communities, especially, obviously, if mm -hmm. one of those communities has needs, the other has, right? Yeah. You, you need a, a connection for reciprocity. Do you think in a lot of these um, decentralized social systems, things I've been hearing talked about, I've never discussed with anyone the problem of like mob rule, but it seems that that would be kind of part and parcel with becoming decentralized is the problem of of mob rule and um is it possible that you know it is going to be hard even as a small a marginalized community that you're talking about um to still get aid or help or or social connection if there's such a large body of people that doesn't want to help and doesn't want to connect. Um, what, what do you think? I mean, may, maybe there, there's probably realistically always going to be like a couple of people you can help, but in the situation of mob rule, it just seems like that would slow down progress so much that it could be problematic. Yeah, I, I think maybe I need to like expand on the kind of mob rule you're talking about. Because like, like, for example, in a democracy, there's mm -hmm. like a, if we're doing a majority democracy, there's like a fundamental flaw right. of, of a tyranny of the majority. You, you can, if you get 51%, you can vote to screw the other 49%. And then there's, you subdivide it again and mm -hmm. do it again until you basically got a dictatorship. And this is like exactly like how Hitler rose to power is he just kept on uh, isolating subgroups, uh, turning everyone against that small group, mm -hmm. basically depriving them of rights in this society and then rinse and repeat. Uh, hence mm -hmm. that you know famous poem like first they came for the communists uh, then they came for yeah. and and so this is a basic problem with with democratic systems I think and mm -hmm. so that's part of why I'm interested in ones where you take the individual volition within the group so like you know it's like people may uh, vote to cut all the social services in the world but 
I might be willing to give, you know, what I can, you know, each month. Like, you know, even if somebody's like, oh, look, I can afford like two, five dollars, whatever. But if you if you uh, made that available mm-hmm. to someone you trust to distribute it, then what you've got is you've got a very liquid economic democracy that it, it can institute a, a social safety net, and it's less prone to um, some kinds of mob rule where a mob can simply deprive everybody of all intended benefits. So, I mean, I'm, I'm fairly convinced of what you're saying, but to play devil's advocate, in the case of, like, Hitler coming to power, wasn't that always the case? Like, families could still give to one another and help. We still had the case, the extreme cases in the Holocaust where there's a family harboring Jews in their basement and that type of thing. That is a social collateral system that's happening one-to-one where parties still maintain a volition of sorts. Um, so just for the sake of playing devil's advocate, couldn't we argue that a social collateral system naturally does exist and has existed, yeah. but we still get this problem? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I don't think that it does. Yeah, it's not a new solution. I, I, I almost try to preface with that. But what is new about using cryptocurrency to empower it mm-hmm. is we can encode. So rather than me having to like, hey, Mark, you good <laughs> for this or like whatever, we can now have like... Um, if we encode it digitally, we can basically have this global ledger that encodes not just like a one-person hop. We can potentially encode like multi-person hops, and you can potentially have a, a very uh, large graph, um, so we could bridge large distant connections, um, and it could be instant. So rather than having to have lots of individual conversations, you can reduce it to potentially a very small like app-like confirmation. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, yeah, sure, right. That it looks like that fire was an accident. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. and and by reducing that friction, um, we we increase the power of these already kind of fundamental human trust relationships. Okay, and so if you're right, and this does become the future, um, do you foresee any problems with it? Like, what do you think will be the biggest challenges? I mean, one of my apprehensions is things like social safety nets, where um, how do you make sure enough is going to it? Like, because it, it, it is like, it, it, I feel like this idea could, like, it's like my, my biggest fear is it only takes off among very selfish people <laughs> or something. Like, I guess it does, it, it almost fundamentally can't because it's built on, like, well, it's like, sure, sure, your house is yours and no one can step on your property, but what, who would you let, you know, and, and so on and so forth. So sharing capabilities is foundational to it. If people were too, um, too tight with their sharing their abilities, then it could, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, that's, that's the way it would fail. It would be like, oh, like people actually didn't share enough. Um, so I think that this only would work kind of in tandem with like a kind of cultural shift where, um, like, like we were saying, uh, like people have to basically learn how to be a central bank and that there's two <laughs> roles in that. It's like you have to keep your promise, but also you have to make promises. So I think that's maybe part of what today people try to not do. Like when people hodl cryptocurrency, what they're really trying to do is they're trying to stop making promises. They're like, they're like, you know what? I've got enough. They're like, shouldn't this be enough? Have I done enough, everybody? You just buy what I have. Like, it's like what you have. It's like on a digital ledger. It's like imaginary money. Like, like we have a lot. There's a lot of work to do, and you know, hopefully, it isn't all just, uh, <laughs> yeah, like serving wealthier people. Hopefully, um, hopefully, we can uh, free up some of our <laughs> shared interests uh, to to work on some of the bigger shared issues we have. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, do you think that that is a problem that is likely to occur, given that you are seeing 
Oh, do you say hodlers or hodlers? Or? Oh, I, I said hodler, but yeah, Hodl. like for people who are not yeah. in the cryptocurrency space, yeah. um, hodling, it's like a joke. It's, you. it's You're saying holds wrong and it's a cryptocurrency investment strategy where you just you just buy your Bitcoin and you just hold it. It's because, a commodity. Because you believe that the commodity will only increase in value forever because there can only ever be 21 million Bitcoins. Therefore, they can only increase in value. Mm -hmm. They're, of course, completely neglecting demand <laughs> um, where it's like, look, if it's not useful to people, then it's, uh, yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, your, your, your graph it has to be yeah, divided by demand. Um, so, and, and I think that people's natural demand will always be in their own interests. So, mm -hmm. uh, for example, if I'm trying to introduce you to my new cryptocurrency app, you're not going to give a crap if it's like, just put money into it and then I get more money. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's gotta be like, well, what, what's in it for me? And and like, I think crowdfunding is a great metaphor for it because um, we, we've already got that. It's like, it's kind of like a cultural foundation where we're like, oh, if, if I could say, look, with this app, you can crowdfund easier. Uh, Kickstarter doesn't get a cut. They don't get to censor or decide whether you get to fund because today, you know, Kickstarter gets to decide and they have like very specific requirements. You know, it's, yeah. you gotta have perks. You're giving out swag. You're not giving out promises for your future services, which I think is like this fundamental thing. Um, mm -hmm. Before I was a programmer, I, I owned a screen printing business and I had a moment where I needed to buy a machine. I just needed liquidity for this. It was like a $3,000 upgrade. Okay. And it was going to let me massively increase my productivity. Um, and I was like, oh, I've got all these clients lined up. They will literally buy future promises. I was like, I'm just going to kickstart it real quick. And they're like, no, that's, we don't do like shares it it's not fun it's not kitschy it won't go viral we need like <laughs> we need fun laser engraved like swag <laughs> and stuff like so like kickstarter is like a crowdfunding toy in a way yeah um i think if we if we start unlocking opportunities like hey you you, you want to get out of this dire situation like get you you want an education like here like sell sell shares in your education and you can start crowdfunding it now and what's great about kickstarter right is people don't pay until you're funded mm -hmm. so even if you've got like nobody trusting you right now you've got you've got a standing yeah. desire to go to school or you've got a standing desire to open that shop and you can just be gradually accumulating people's promises to support you if you did it and so those standing promises i think are really the big uh, kind of leap in the economics here, because rather than, no longer do you have to line it all up at once. No longer mm -hmm. do you have to get all your funders in the same room, around one table, and have them all sign in front of a notary or something. Now you can just gradually uh, go to people that trust you first, and gradually branch out, get maybe get a little institutional capital. They may be more interested when you're like, look, I've got, my community has all pitched yeah. in. Look at what they've put in. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that that would be a really powerful signal, even for VCs, I think even traditional VCs would like having that groundwork to work within. Because all they really want is to make a better investment anyways. And if they had that infrastructure, now they're freeing up more of their capital that, to be credibly invested. Like, potentially they could take smaller revenues because they're taking smaller risks. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, uh, so I think that there's a great amount of value that could be potentially unlocked like quickly with a smooth enough onboarding and with um, like uh, selflessness and like, and a desire to help out your community, but mm -hmm. although it does still work if you're like revenue sharing, right? Like yeah, yeah. So and and just going back to like the idea of whether you had, you had mentioned that there might need to be a cultural shift that that takes place in order for this to um, allow for like social safety nets and so forth. Um, 
it seems that usually, well, I shouldn't say usually, but to date, my understanding is that most people who are adopting a lot of these blockchainified systems um, tend to be voluntarists, tend to mm -hmm. be um, people who don't necessarily like welfare systems. Maybe that's that might be over overstating things a bit. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think there's a huge vein of like crypto libertarianism. Mm -hmm. And actually I think they co-opted the word crypto anarchy, even though I think anarchists are a little more into like social safety nets or like helping each other out, mutual mm -hmm. aid. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, no, I, I'm a bit of a voluntarist <laughs> myself, although I don't identify as libertarian in that like, uh, well, I just, I, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think there's, there's like some dirty assumptions. Of, to me, it feels greedy and it's like a weird way of like looking adversarially at the world. Um, uh, I think that Wait, liber libertarianism yeah. or sort of this new yeah. threat. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But but I think that uh, so so this social safety nets. Let's say they were dependent on people's goodwill. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that requires some new blood. It means not just the crypto libertarians have to be into this. It means you have to have people who, like for example, would donate to a charity if they trusted it. Mm -hmm. And I think I think there are I think there's probably a lot of locked up capital there. Like <laughs> because charities, they're almost like there's almost like this dirty reputation. Like charities, like. Oh, that's like you like open a charity when you want to like launder money or something. Like, isn't that like what Trump's like probably going to get impeached over? Like, it's like, well, you're misusing campaign contributions, basically. Um, one thing that blockchains let you do is create actually transparent financial organizations. <laughs> okay, I have to, I'm yeah. sorry, I have, okay. to, I have to back up. Yeah, I yeah. think this is sorry. hilarious and okay. fascinating. So you're suggesting that crypto libertarians are actually the anarchists to some degree. Well, no, no, no. You, no I'm sorry. You, you suggested that it's actually worse than anarchy because anarchists at least have a little bit more of a tender heart. Yeah, I do think so. No way, yeah. really. Yeah. Okay, no. expand. I want to. I want to hear more about that. Uh, I, I mean, I don't want to. Like, these are like such old, <laughs> stale, crusty words that they like barely translate into these new paradigms. Like, like so. I think a lot of us just like brush off words that we liked from when we were younger. It's like, well, I listened to a lot of punk rock that I really agreed with and you know, held, upheld the mantle of anarchy. And I've read a lot of anarchist literature that I thought had a good heart um, and, and had like a realistic center to it. And, and some of my voluntarist approaches where I'm like, it's like, okay, yeah, sure, maybe people will use it for tax evasion, but is it useful in the meanwhile also? Like, like I'm looking for this like transitional thing. Okay, okay, can, wait, 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 yeah. what, can you, what was an anarchist? In, in, as we're talking about this, what is an anarchist? Yeah, I think an anarchist is somebody who thinks you don't require state um, coercion to cooperate effectively and build a civilization. Okay, okay, now um, in conversations I've had with friends, like anarchy has a really strong connotation for a lot of people. Yeah. And I think a lot of people associate that with like chaotic, yeah, yeah, yeah. rioting, yeah, and yeah, things like that. So you're yeah. using anarchy. I probably shouldn't use the word just because, yeah, yeah. Like, by its denotation. It's like, it's like the Banksy poster is like what most people think. They're <laughs> like, so throwing Molotovs. Like, I, I don't think most people who uh, use the word anarchy think that that's what it's all about. Although, you know, if you go on Reddit, maybe you might get that impression, and maybe those are sock puppet accounts that are, you know, I, who knows? Who knows you know, I mean, I think a lot of people think of anarchy that yeah. way. Yeah, so me you're too. using I should it have, in a I should a have not used the word. Uh, or no, 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 yeah. I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did. So you're I'm talking about... Back. We're taking it back. <laughs> anarchy can be, like, gentle and kind and, like, okay, voluntarist. Okay, so, so and anarchy is really, you're just saying, like, decentralized operation. Um, yes, so like no. non-coercive non uh, 
cooperation. Okay. Now, is the government today coercive from an anarchist perspective? Yeah, yeah, of course. Okay, and yeah. so... It's like the taxes are used to build a, a military mighty machine. Okay, right? so an anarchist today might see the government as a sort of like might makes right, I'm a gang, I get to collect taxes for, from you, or right. I'm throwing you into my pit called a prison. Right, okay, right. Okay, so that's how an anarchist views the government today. Now, anarchists, you're suggesting, are, they don't think the government should coerce it, but they do think they should have the power over their own purse strings to say, I'm going to donate to this charity or not, and that they tend to do that? Mm, yeah, yeah, so... F- I, I don't know. I don't know if I want to go down the I, like. I, I'm probably not well enough read to fully like uh, articulate all of anarchist thoughts. Okay. Like, okay. So I, sure. Sure. But, but also, granted, like, you're not like, representing yeah. anarchists. I, I'm trying to understand where you were coming from when you made that statement because I have never heard anything like that. I don't. And I. And I'm. If you hold that belief, I'm guessing a lot of people hold that belief. No. No. I think I, I'm a total fringe on that. Like I think. I think people. I think more people that I like are, are adopting the term solar punk for what I'm describing. Solar punk. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like we're gonna we're gonna make a new thing and it's gonna run on solar and uh, we're gonna have robots and UVI. <laughs> right. Okay, so um, solar punk just referring to like clean energies and like automation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. So so now if it's okay, yeah, yeah, I'm I, gonna steer you back. To... Yeah. 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 Please. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want I don't want people to like go in like because because the the worst thing you can do almost with these new opportunities is like align them with like some like heavily baggage carrying ideology. Sure. Um, so sure. So in many ways, like it's just like the worst thing, and and really it's like a bad habit of mine to use any words that have like triggers for other people. Um, okay. Okay. But can I still back up and, yeah, and yeah. dissect this a little bit, sure. but gently? Um, (laughs) so people who are moving into this decentralize this, decentralize that, let's blockchainify this, let's try to kind of get rid of the middleman in the form of a bank and possibly in the form of government. Um, there, there are two different breeds of people as you're suggesting. And those, they all kind of are not necessarily all, but many are libertarian and feel and, voluntarism is something that is in common, but among voluntarists, there's sort of two camps and there's one that's really self-centered and one that's really just in it for autonomy sake. I want to be an autonomous actor versus I want to be autonomous because I just want to hodl all my goods for myself. Yeah. Okay. This is a good, uh, tell you what, I think I can articulate one of the things I think is like hypocritical about libertarianism right off of that. Okay. So libertarians um, believe in property rights. They believe that their property is theirs, and that's like an inalienable right. Mm-hmm. And they also believe in minimizing the government. They think that their property rights are somehow separate from the government. Um, I, I think the vein of anarchism that I'm kind of drawing on there is mm-hmm. like property rights are totally like a function of the government. They're enforced yes. by the government, by coercion. And everything that you associate with that you're hodling, your little fortress, all of that, it's actually being enforced by the government. You're, it's like as much as you think that your like gun collection is what's keeping you safe. It's like your property rights are protected by the government. Um, so I will I yeah. will grant I will grant that I probably I don't know how so so I I don't know that I would identify as libertarian. I probably identify as classical liberal, which is pretty similar. Mm-hmm. Um, but I. I don't know about property rights for physical goods. I do think it's super hypocritical that libertarians are all about intellectual property. I don't even know what that is. Like what that definitely is government intervention for an idea. Mm -hmm. That's really just, I mean, information wants to be free. It wants to propagate and be replicated. And if it's no skin off of your back for somebody else to take 
that idea. I don't, I don't understand why intellectual property is such a big thing for libertarians. I don't know, like, like physical property rights, I can kind of still be on board with that because if somebody takes a physical good that's finite in nature, there is a loss of sorts happening yeah. as opposed to information, which as you know, I kind of like these additive only systems. I think that information is something that lends itself to being additive only. But anyway, I, I'll, I'll grant that, but keep, keep going. Oh yeah, uh, where, where next? Um, so yeah, so property, like I mean a lot of mine, I, I try to just reflect realities and try to create uh, effective systems within those. So like your intellectual property point, I like totally agree with. Like, like in my kind of voluntarist crypto world mindset, mm -hmm. and if you want to make money off of ideas, like your best way of doing that is it's probably something like an auction for initially revealing it because once it's out, it's out. Mm -hmm. Or if you do share it, you have to share it, uh, well, what do you know, kind of in a trust network, right? Like yeah. you share access to it. Yeah. Um, but that, that access is only as restricted as the trust is credible. Mm. You can't really charge for access. I mean, sure, JSTOR <laughs> is still managing to for now. We're oh. coming for you, JSTOR. <laughs> You, you will pay for Aaron. Okay, but um, like, you know, like, like I, ultimately- As an academic, once I, hate, I, right? I hate how closed it's, off journal like access is. It is a plague on the planet. Um, and it's hilarious because I think that all of that started because of print. Again, this is going back to the finite goods problem. I think that journals started closed access and started being hyper-competitive because they only had so much space to mail out this physical thing they had to print. Right, and then they got entrenched. And then they got, yeah, yeah, so <laughs> and, that, and then it. they're like, oh, we don't know how to adjust to a new business model where we can just, like, our good can be distributed at marginal cost. And they right. just haven't adjusted, but right. it really needs to become open access. Right, they're basically a monopoly, and yeah, and, and the thing is, like, I mean, my perspective on it is that, like, in practice, anyone with access to those documents has the ability to free them and liberate them. And there is a, there is a movement for that. There's, I, I recently saw a, a site with like all these liberated scientific articles and it was awesome. And was more people- Was it Open Science or something else? Oh, I forgot what it was called. I, I'm bad at remembering new site names, but uh, that, people should liberate science articles. I mean, yeah. Yeah, well, like, and, and I, I'm getting like all, all worked up because yeah, now you're talking about this stuff. But, but to be fair, I have like, to be fair. It's criminal. That, that there, there's I'm, like, not, I'm like hypothetically advocating it. Okay, so so to the to the point about Aaron Schwartz and, yeah. and JSTOR and all of that, like yeah. I don't I don't really know what the landscape was back when the whole Aaron Schwartz thing happened. Yeah. But nowadays, um, journals usually their their copyright rules are such that you can't share their finalized um, two column, pretty layout, here's our header and our footer mm. papers, but you can usually put up online your finalized version of the paper that was approved for publication huh. before they formatted it. So huh. now, oh, that's... usually you can get the information and I think it's fine if they're gonna close access because you so want their formatting? pretty header. If, yeah. they're, if their niche is the formatting, <laughs> I think they're in for a rough time. <laughs> no, I agree, I agree. The problem though is that academics is a slow moving environment and you're working with a lot of professors who have been at this since print was the way all of the, that print was the primary form of distribution. And yeah. so they're, I think really what they're banking on is that only like 10% or fewer people bother putting their papers up online. And hmm. as that population grows, you know, things will change. But Yeah, yeah, not to mention the whole like uh, ac academia as like in the same problem as journalism where it's like sensationalism sells and like yeah. radical findings sell even if they don't have like the full data behind them. Yeah. And, uh, so that's like a whole nother problem to solve. 
Um, and it's, yeah, it's probably not going to get solved through like the current mechanism of, of funding. And I mean, yeah. <laughs> and, and you know what? Um, just for viewers watching, I'm realizing we're talking about something most people probably aren't, they probably don't know what we're talking about. Do you want to give like the short version of, uh, first of all, what is JSTOR? Second of all, what happened with Aaron Schwartz? Oh, uh, maybe you, you should. I'm, I'm not very academic. Okay. I, I, yeah. So JSTOR is a database of journals. Um, and those journal articles, they'll publish journal articles that um, academics have put forward and have been accepted. And Aaron Schwartz, but, but those journal articles are closed access, meaning that you have to pay exorbitant fees to be able to access these papers, which are research. It's cutting edge of science. So really what's happening is um, these database companies have shut down and made it so that only really wealthy people or people who are affiliated with an institution that can afford access can um, read journal articles. Aaron Schwartz was, I think, an MIT grad or student, something like that, who um, hacked into JSTOR and, open, and opened access, like basically released all these journal articles that were there. He actually didn't get them out. Oh, he didn't get them out. No. Okay. He got caught with a laptop in a server closet. See, uh, you should be telling the story, so go ahead, take I, over. Yeah, maybe that's right. Like, I, I mean, I'm like kind of hazy on it, but yeah, he, he had been draining their database and he had a hard drive and was filling up and they caught him. And they, uh, they started going full federal prosecution on him and they started just like ruining his life. And uh, uh, yeah, and, and they drove him to kill himself. Yeah, uh, which is absolutely tragic. And this is, and so this, and this stuff is still happening. Actually, for a research project I was working on recently, um, I was trying to web scrape like metadata on articles that I could use to analyze like just trends in science. And it was this hilarious like cat and mouse chase where I would I would get stopped by these captures saying like, we think you're a robot. That's because they're, they're worried that I'm going to scrape all their data and mm -hmm. open it just like, yeah. like basically what Aaron Schwartz was trying to do. And it and they still have these really sophisticated algorithms in place trying to catch anybody who's who's gathering data from their systems too quickly, even if these are paying legitimate customers, mm -hmm. um, which is which is pretty yeah. interesting. That's why we have to decentralize the theft. We need like a browser <laughs> plug-in on all the <laughs> academics that have access and probably just gradually bleeding them dry. Oh, I have a browser plug-in. No, but no, see, I'm not doing it. We no. could just do that. If we could just do that if people would open access to their own articles. If they just release that information in their final print. So here's my right. plug, my okay. unashamed plug to academics is put your approved preprint article up online so that people can access your information. That's why you're doing yeah. it anyway. You're doing research to help the world, so get it out there. Yeah. That's my plug. Yeah, unless you're doing it to make ends meet. <laughs> In which well, case, but you're not paid for, I mean, academics, there are very few people who are paid for their paper. Right. Okay. okay, good. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, I, I, again, I'm not like really an academic, so, so I'm kind of speculating when I talk about what those economics are like today. Anyway, so decentralize yeah. the theft by, you don't even have to break IP laws, you just have to yeah. follow their rules and put your articles online. Oh, right, right, yeah, that's, that's a great approach. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. In the spirit of not being too, like, anarchist or, like, self-interested. Yeah, 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 that would, I, I mean, I wouldn't call it self-interested, it's really for the good of humanity. <laughs> Uh, but, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, uh, but yeah, yeah. So we, we don't want to we don't want to break any laws or advocate that. Right. <laughs> okay.
Okay, so where were we before we got on the Aaron Schwartz? I totally hijacked our train of thought uh, here. I don't know. Um, but we were having a good conversation. Uh, oh, I mean, we had gotten to like uh, academia. Academia. We're talking about the distribution of knowledge, IP. Yes. How IP itself is uh, a libertarian, uh, pop like strangely. Yeah, strangely um, because, libertarian value. Yeah, yeah, and and I, I do think that a lot of the kinds of property rights that libertarians enjoy are enforced by by governments, and mm -hmm. and that's that's like. Fine, if you like the kinds of property distribution that the government is enforcing, then like by all means back it as it is. Um, uh, I want to enable people to gain access to opportunities and liquidity beyond what um, the current institutions are providing because I think that a lot of people are living on a trickle and a lot of people are like not effectively getting by at all. Um, so do you think that forward-looking, the economic system you talked about with social collateral, mm. um, Will that, I mean, it sounds like from our discussion of marginalized populations that you do think that this system has a potential to create, um, to empower and to create a, a social safety net to some degree. Would you anticipate, want, what are your thoughts about that potentially, yeah, kind of getting rid of welfare systems in the government, not, not as though no welfare exists, but just as it being inherent in the system? Yeah, I mean, I would I would just be measuring what's getting met, what needs are getting met. So, I mean, the the system as I've laid out is just a collaboration and coordination tool. Mm -hmm. And I would hope that people use it in part to help provide a safety net to each other. And mm -hmm. and maybe that ends up looking like a government that, you know, gets an ID from everybody and then makes sure they have basic needs met. Or maybe it just means that like people are taking care of their peers or whatever. That would be like one of the danger zones for me is that mm -hmm. if your social safety net only comes from your current social network, mm -hmm. you could get a situation kind of like, uh, oh, what's that website, everybody? It's like you have medical bills, so you go to oh, GoFundMe. Oh, yes, yes, yeah, right? okay, that. So GoFundMe is like the, it's like <laughs> level one of social safety net that's peer-to-peer. -peer. You're like, uh -huh. and the problem with it is that basically you have to be well connected to benefit from it, right? Like, Does GoFunded um, scrape like transaction fees? I'm assuming. Oh yeah, they. Okay. I think they get ten uh, percent. Maybe it's only five. Okay, but yeah, so they it's get, like a weekly peer-to-peer -peer social. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like net. it's like the best peer-to-peer. -peer, it, it's like the Kickstarter of uh, yeah. And you have just, to be well connected for it to work, but that's no right. different in the system that it's, we it's, talked it's, about it's earlier. Not, it's not. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a good example of the same basic problem. Um, so so what. The, the alternative, the one benefit that I think like a crypto-based system would give you is um, when you're donating, it can be in addition to just an individual, mm -hmm. you can donate to organizations that are financially transparent. So by being financially transparent, it can be transparent in as many ways as they want. And there are mm -hmm. centralized versions of this, like Open Collective uh, today, where, look, you, they post all the receipts and... Um, and so you can generally account for how they're spending it. So, okay. so I think it would be great today to see more like a social safety net like organizations start up, go on Open Collective, and try to provide what they can. Mm -hmm. um, what's cool when you add social collateral is now um, you, you add this transitivity. So maybe you don't know who to give to, but you trust me to kind of allocate. And I, I like researching this, that's kind of a hobby of mine. Mm. So I know that uh, this group is pretty good right now. But if the second that they're less credible, then I might divert to another group. And if the groups aren't good, then I'm going to at least make sure that I'm giving to like the the people I need that I'm aware of, right? Mm -hmm. So so the identity verification can either be done at a totally peer-to-peer -to -peer level, or hopefully some organizations spring up and are able to effectively um, account 
for people so that they can be given social safety nets. And that's like one of the big challenges yeah. in a peer-to-peer -peer system is um, like all the UBI projects ultimately kind of hinge on uh, can you take a good account of people? And I think the government has like consistently uh, not done a great fair job of this, like especially when you see people's uh, citizenship getting revoked spontaneously because their parent was an immigrant or something. Mm. Like, like we're, we're in a kind of scary time uh, for trusting a government to fairly uh, designate I human status uh, and, mm. and thus worthiness of social safety net. I want to, that's fascinating. I want to, I want to ask a little bit about like, yeah, the potential for this to not have such a high need on um, borders, like country borders anymore, mm -hmm. if if there is sort of this inherent trust, like, or, or maybe like a lighter border, like there's only, you know, like the level of trust of a person in vetting that needs to happen speaks for itself. But before diving in that too much, what time is it? I've lost, you have a watch, I've lost uh, track 12, of 1217. Okay. Um, I don't want to run too long. So let's talk about this a little bit and okay. then, um, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. But, um, what are your thoughts on that? How this could interface with like politics and trust globally? Yeah. Yeah. So nation borders, I, I, I don't know. I feel like when, when nation <laughs> borders come up, I, I'm a, <laughs> I'm like, well, I'm of why is it such a big stinking deal? Like, honestly, like if you're afraid that somebody's going to come and like, they're going to do a job you're not willing to do, that doesn't make sense. Um, or that you, you think they're making your environment worse. Like, uh, I, I feel like maybe it's just cause I take a personally more global look at it. Like I, mm -hmm. I feel like we're sharing this planet. Like if you're not helping people get the opportunities they need, mm -hmm. you're, you're creating more like animosity, strife, hatred in the world. Uh, and I think I don't I don't want to be part of it. <laughs> I wonder how much of it comes down to like the is that I agree with you. It's like to me, it seems like the ideal world would be open border. But I think that the problem is actually self-inflicted by the government centering around the issue of taxes. Like maybe hmm. it kind of comes back to this whole idea. Oh, of, it's because of they're the, not paying taxes. The oh, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, right. I think that's why people get upset because they uh, feel right. like this is where your fist uh, meets my nose. Oh, it's all resent about taxes. <laughs> that's is that No, I think like I think I think it comes down to like, yes, I'm paying for these social systems oh, that what a, what a masterful Aikido the government pulls when it redirects the anger at them towards uh, others. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I and so I'm, you know, the, coming back to like this social credit thing, like again, yeah. that's potentially another layer that it might alleviate with um like border border control, this type of thing, because I think the problem of immigration is the problem of funding your army. If we're going back to what we had talked about earlier in like standing debt, you've got you've now got more people to protect, more roads that need fixing, like just more country wear and tear. But until people are legally citizens paying taxes, they're not it 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 thins out the budget. I think most people who are concerned about borders are concerned about that. Like there's there's talk about like, you know, Trump talks a lot about um, terrorism and like thugs and rape and stuff like that. I, I think some people might be concerned about that, but my guess is most people know that that's, that's not, I think most people are upset about immigration. We have it so much do domestic taxes. terrorism happening and we do nothing about it. <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, so so like that 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 kind of like fear, some people I think are, are fearful of borders for those reasons, but I think that at least like pre-Trump days, my sense was that the issue of immigration centered around taxes and getting people legally involved in the system so that they're doing their fair share, that kind of thing. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. Uh, kind of just briefly tying into like like the the fear of terrorism, mm-hmm. like because it's super relevant, like like both domestic and and abroad. I think that. Um, terrorism is like a symptom of uh, systemic violence, and this is like a vocabulary from like anarchist thought. Mm-hmm. But it's the idea that um, these people are deprived of basic needs, and all these kinds of societal pressures wear on them and push them to uh, extreme acts. toward terrorism. Yeah, yeah. Well, not just terrorism, but like every like if you're if you're hungry, you're more likely to steal food. Mm-hmm. It's like basic things like that, and it kind of escalates from that. If you're if you're deprived all other opportunities. You mm-hmm. might participate in the cartel, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the, the less basic opportunity, the less fairness you're being granted from society, mm-hmm. the more likely you are to, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, basically do these awful things. There was a great Mark Twain quote I saw recently where he, he commented on this. He, was, he said, I think it was Mark Twain. Jesus, was it? Uh, it was like, it was like when, uh, when a person commits a violence, like it's actually like society's violence because like, mm. uh, they're pressured to it by all of society, something like that. I, yeah. I could probably pull it up if you want to, but it was, it was a pretty cool one. I don't, like, feel free. Yeah, I, yeah, don't, I, mean, I don't think that, I mean, I, I think that, um, yeah, I think it's important to understand that statistically and psychologically people do wear down, but I also don't want to like rule out the role of agency and volition in this oh, yeah, as well. Yeah, of course Because obviously lots of people are under pressure and very few people oh, become sorry. terrorists. <laughs> sorry, it was H.G. Wells. He said, crime and bad lives are the measure of a state's failure. All crime in the end is the crime of the community. Anyways, that was like a cool one. But yeah, no, I agree. I wouldn't deprive individual agency either. But <clears throat> as a person who's trying to participate in a society, the yeah. I think that one of the best tools we have for combating like uh, desperate actions mm-hmm. is providing strong uh, opportunity like there's no there's no wall in the world big mm-hmm. enough to keep out all desperation if mm-hmm. there's enough desperation mm-hmm. so I would just I, I think that a lot of people ignore that side of the equation they're like no no no, we'll have a really strong wall and we'll have a really strong military but eventually if the inequality is strong enough the incentive to equalize uh, it sh- could potentially overcome like any measures um, yeah. So I would just say keep account of that other variable, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, 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 again, like I, I wonder how much too of these of these problems, speaking to a strength of kind of what you're predicting to come, um, is whittling away at inefficiencies, because if if there's a lot of waste in the transit of value that could be just redirected straight into value, like those things compound, add up, make a big mm-hmm. difference. Um, and yeah, I bet I bet that we would see fewer crimes if people were more financially abled. Right, that's, so. that's a, I think that's a pretty safe theory. <laughs> I, I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then maybe one day we can expand this to like Mars and, and like Elon Musk. See if we right. can get some aliens on board for the for the whole social credit system. Yeah, well, I, I don't sorry, see why. Or social collateral system. Yeah, I don't see why it wouldn't be. If it's a useful construct, I don't see why it would be not useful in all sorts of contexts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So are you planning on personally taking any steps to try to work toward this sort of a blockchainified system? Yeah, yeah. I'd say that's my full-time job is I'm working towards this blockchainified system. Okay, um, so you see MetaMask as being a part of that. Yeah. Yeah, because these crypto constructs, like a lot of this stuff, the, the automation of multi-hop, uh, collateral mm-hmm. management, like this, this kind of thing, um, it could be done centralized, but then what we've seen is basically central interests usually take like a 10% cut. Mm-hmm. With blockchains, we can reduce that a lot. 
Mm -hmm. uh, the caveat is that blockchain is such a new paradigm. There's a lot of uh, kinks we need to work out to make it like usable, approachable, and friendly for normal people. Yeah. Um, so MetaMask is first and foremost a platform for onboarding uh, users and for iterating on new kinds of applications uh, within that. And so those new applications would include like new forms of crowdfunding, mm -hmm. uh, new forms of like, uh, yeah, leveraging your social collateral, uh, new forms of creating uh, agreements, uh, automated subscriptions, all these kinds of like, any kind of economic inefficiency that could be like improved if it was automated, uh, mm -hmm. basically could be encoded on a blockchain. And we only get those benefits if we have a platform that works with blockchain. Um, so MetaMask was like originally a browser plugin to let people like iterate on it. Mm -hmm. um, it got great developer success. Mm -hmm. It's been so successful with developers that uh, there's now like 10 projects basically doing the exact same thing. Wow. Um, the Opera browser has integrated an almost identical uh, Ethereum client into their browser. Um, but I think there's still a long way to go. Um, like the, the current state of these um, Ethereum clients mm -hmm. is uh, they're not very scalable. They're very slow. They don't have a way to uh, inherently store your personal uh, information. So I think there's a privacy aspect they lack. Um, and uh, yeah, but beyond those, and then they're not, they're still not as usable as they could be. Mm -hmm. But between those, once we make it a little more usable, a bit more scalable, and we account for uh, yeah, personal privacy, mm -hmm. um, I think that there's gonna be this kind of convergence of opportunities that make uh, personal credit, uh, personal crowdfunding, and multi-hop, transitive yeah. trust webs, like incredibly efficient and likely, um, yeah, yeah, and yeah, they'll be ripe. They'll be, they're gonna be so ripe. Like, I, I just hope a lot of people approach it. There are uh, projects already kind of working on it. Mm -hmm. So there's a project called Trust Lines uh, on the Ethereum blockchain, which is okay. basically a transitive uh, trust uh, network. So mm -hmm. it's, um, and then there's also a, a project called Circles, which is uses a very similar principle to mm -hmm. extend a, a basic income. Uh, so a continuous issuance of a coin that has a constant value. Okay. So I've been thinking about MetaMask far too myopically, it sounds like. Huh. And so you're really building the low-level um, infrastructure for exactly what we've been talking about. And is MetaMask planning to long-term tackle on getting people to adopt these social collateral systems itself? Or are you going to remain an infrastructure company and encourage others to build sort of on top of you to tackle that problem? That's a good question. I, I think that as a software platform, MetaMask mm -hmm. is kind of uh, best positioned when it's a general purpose tool. Okay. So, so I think a lot of this is it's about creating like a fertile ground for digital innovation. Mm -hmm. If we, for example, if we bank, banked too hard on a particular implementation, like we integrated trust lines full on or made circles UBI like first and foremost. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I mean, trust lines has their own app, for example. But what, what that does is that suddenly requires everybody to go through that one app. It becomes very centralized. That one app is now like a gatekeeper thing. It could take extractive revenue. What we're building right now is a much more kind of open platform. People can connect to it in a wide variety of ways. Okay. And and I think we're not banking on exactly how it works. So like the general mechanisms of sharing capabilities transitively mm -hmm. and creating these networks, then leveraging them to, uh, to crowdfund and, and even insure things. Um, I think it's such an open-ended thing. Like it's, it's literally got its own theory in computer science, right? So object capabilities. So what we're really looking for is what ends up being the most scalable way to implement object capabilities uh, on a blockchain. 
And uh, hopefully we facilitate that being very usable mm -hmm. and, and engaging and uh, yeah. So, so if somebody else doesn't build it, that, you know, like, like I'm putting so much energy on the platform, kind of hoping people <laughs> just like, you know, like I think people have not made it, there, there hasn't been like a really strong a mint your own token and sell it as a service. Like that's not an app right now. I don't know why that isn't. Hmm. It's probably because it's hard to take, uh, extract value from that. It's a very, that's a very like selfless hmm. um, application. Um, so if nobody does that, like that'll be something I eventually would do. Okay, um, so you would have like, like Dan coin and somebody could buy into it in exchange sure. for service, like. Right, yeah, yeah, I mean, like I was saying earlier, like I, I think a lot of these coins will be potentially more specific. I don't know, like this is, I'm definitely speculating here, like like will I will my coins be tied to a specific promise? Like, mm -hmm. for example, if I wanna go to medical school, maybe the coins that I'm selling should be um, backed by promises to treat you with my medical degree. And I think mm -hmm. that has a nice incentive aligning mm -hmm. property because now the people that, that you owe, um, their promises that they bought from you are only good if you're successful. So they're invested in your educational success as opposed to modern education lending where um, they gave you the money, haha, -ha, now you're locked into it. There's, you can't file for bankruptcy for education loans. Now you just owe us. It doesn't matter how you pay. Here it would be like, oh no, no, they're only getting paid if this venture is successful anyways. So anyways, I think there's benefits to confining yeah. the scope of a coin that you issue and try to crowdfund with. But yeah, you could also just do like a flat one, be like, these are Dan bucks. They're each worth a dollar. I'll pay you back. Like no reason not to do that. Um, but I think that it, uh, yeah, yeah. I, anyways, I'm, that's why I'm building an ecosystem. I think there's like so many uh, options and opportunities and design uh, parameters that, that need to be explored. Okay. So what other applications are you, besides like personal coinage, yeah, yeah. what other um, applications do you feel like are either just missing and are easy, low-hanging fruit, or just things you want to see. Yeah, I mean, so all these kinds of, like, I'm really excited. There are several projects doing, like, governance and stuff. Like, so when I was talking about, oh, well, maybe we do want a social safety net. We mm -hmm. want an organization that, like, accounts for, let's say, the homeless. Like, wouldn't it be great if we had an organization that accounted for all the homeless and then said to everybody, this is what it would cost to house them all. Like, that's just like, like, let's at least do that research, right? Like. Um, so I want to see on-chain organizations that are able to transparently operate um, in ways that are increasingly accessible, where people can go like, oh, they transparently accounted for all the homeless people, uh, and, that, and they said this is what it'll cost, and they like proposed the budget and everything, and I can chip in. Um, so those governance applications are all a huge deal. Um, the thing is, governance itself is like a huge idea space also, right? Because so initially they all come with like you know, token voting or like, uh, first past the post voting. This is again a huge design space in itself. So, okay. so social collateral is one tool for like sharing capabilities. But then also, sometimes you do have joint organizations and you have to collectively agree on them. And so I want to see more forms of governance implemented. Okay. Um, yeah, and between the two of those, I think, I, I think you're covering most of what's cool about blockchains to me. Um, you're, you're like, if you're minting new currencies, tracking them, allowing them to empower new kinds of organizations, uh, I, I don't know what else I could ask for. I guess some fun games. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, any other like calls to action, areas of help that MetaMask needs? MetaMask is open source. Oh, I, MetaMask I is open source. Yeah. Okay. So any like developer needs you want to shout out to? Yeah. Um, you know, we, we, uh, 
are a browser wallet or a financial browser-based application. So if you're into the kind of security that you would trust your finances to, and you're good at browser hacking, like <laughs> that's the kind of skill that we look for. Um, other than that, you know, this ecosystem is very large. You know, blockchains are very new. There's a lot of places to collaborate. Um, so, so hopefully, uh, people with relevant skills, and and then also the design of these systems is like I think a lot of your viewers maybe they're not programmers, but maybe they're uh, ec economists, or maybe they're like uh, just dreamers. I, I, I you know I, I don't know mm -hmm. your audience intimately personally, but if they if they have ideas of how they would want to see um, you know autonomous social arrangements, like getting into the conversation um, okay. and and sharing how they'd like to see things evolve. That's Great. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much, Dan. Thanks for joining me and for yeah. the good conversation and for like even just enlightening me about the way, I mean, the, the future of value stores and value exchange, but also um, your thoughts on like the culture underlying some hmm. of the, the movements to use different currencies. I thought, um, especially the part about, about anarchy, which you may or may I not have, be I should have not talked about it. Oh, no. Well, <laughs> no, I, I think I'm it joking. was, I think that probably a lot of people share your perspective. And so, um, we'll see. It was great. Anyway, thanks cool. so much, Dan. Yeah, thanks for having me. Mm -hmm.